So, here we are, the book of Jonah. In those Bibles the ushers uh, were handing out, it's page 654. A small book of the Bible. We're continuing with our study of the minor prophets. And they're given the name minor because they are small. Uh, So, this is uh, four chapters. Um, uh, Jonah, the book of Jonah, is probably the most familiar story of all the minor prophets. Uh, This is a story that even... Uh, non-believers have heard of usually when you talk about, you know, Jonah and the whale. But I will tell you the word whale does not appear in the book of Jonah in any of the Bible versions, any translations, King James and IV, American Standard, certainly not the message. Uh, I don't even think it says Jonah in the message. But anyhow, um, uh, but but yet it does say great fish. So uh, that's what we're taking a look at here, Jonah and the great fish. Uh, you know, between skeptics and liberal theologians who dismiss this story as not credible, uh, you have a lot of people who might be familiar with this story, but not as many who actually believe it. In fact, even Martin Luther, the great German theologian of the 16th century, he struggled with this book. He was open about it. He believed it, but he only believed it because it was in the Bible. He said this, quote, This narrative seems almost unbelievable. Yea, sounds like a greater falsehood and folly than any fable of the poets. If it were not recorded in Scripture, I would regard it as a ridiculous lie. I myself would not believe it were it not written in the Holy Scripture, end quote. So let's get a little uh, head start what we're talking about here tonight. The book of Jonah uh, is very different from the other prophetic books because it's more of a narrative. And uh, oddly enough, it's uh, kind of an embarrassing narrative. Uh, Can you imagine that God tells you to write one of your most embarrassing, uh, disobedient things you've ever done against the Lord so that everybody else can read it after you? And that's what Jonah is called to do here because it's his narrative about his own disobedience to God. His name, Jonah, there's no J in the Hebrew alphabet. It's just a Y, so his name is pronounced Yonah in Hebrew, which translates dove. That's what his name means. Uh, In addition... Uh, Jonah first appears to us in the Bible in 2 Kings chapter 14. I'll just read it briefly, verses 23 through 25. It says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned forty-one years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Labo Hamath to the Sea of Arabah in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. So uh, this is that Jonah. So that tells us since he ministers during the reign of King Jeroboam II, that places the timeline of his ministry at roughly 780 B.C. Uh, Jesus twice refers to Jonah uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. We will look at that a little bit later. And Jonah's prophecy is exclusively directed to the people of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of the ancient Assyrian Empire. And when we speak about Nineveh as a literal city and Assyria as an actual empire, we're talking about today's region of Iraq. The ancient city of Nineveh is located today in Iraq. So this is kind of an unusual thing, because most of the times through the prophets, well, we have our God-calling prophets to either speak to the southern kingdom of Israel or the northern kingdom of Israel. But in this case, God's going to call Jonah to go some 600 miles, give or take, 
to the city of Nineveh and to preach a very simple message of repentance. His whole sermon is eight words. We'll get to it later when we study through this book. Uh, But in response to these eight words, the people of Nineveh turn. They repent. Some people will look at this story, and obviously one of the most obvious themes is the story of the great fish and what a miracle that was. And it was indeed. But I think an even greater miracle is that an entire city of people turned towards God as the result of one man's simple message. He was just walking through the streets of the city, uh, telling people to repent. Uh, At this particular time, the city of Nineveh, most Bible scholars believe, had a population of somewhere between 500,000 and 1 million people. That's a lot lot of people. It tells us at the end of the book of of Jonah in chapter 4 that there were 120,000 people who did not know their left hand from their right hand, which is a reference to children. So there's at least 120,000 children living in this city at the time, and that's how they do the math to come to believe that at least 500,000 to a million people occupied the ancient city of Nineveh at this particular time. And they are repenting. Now, why would God send someone 600 miles with this message? Because... God is concerned about every people group, including the ones who might be, in some estimation, the most wicked. In fact, God calls them wicked right here in chapter 1, verse 2, when he says to Jonah, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. This is very challenging, and I want you to keep this perspective as we start to go through this book, because what Jonah ends up doing, and we're going to see his own prejudice towards these people, because at the end he's going to throw a little pity party, he's upset that that they actually repent. (laughs) You know, he's like, God, I knew you were going to be merciful, and these wicked people are not worth saving, and he actually gets disheartened, because he doesn't think these people are worth saving, which is very challenging in this regard. There are probably some groups of people, types of people, kinds of people, if you and I were honest enough, that we've dismissed as not really redeemable. You say, well, that's a really horrible thing to say. Well, I think if you're honest, I mean, let's just touch on the raw emotion of 9-11 for a moment and how horrible that was and how it's affected us deeply, especially the families that have lost loved ones in those horrible terrorist attacks. So how easy it is, is it for us to think about those who are still bent on, this, on similar jihad and think to ourselves, they're not savable. And we automatically even dismiss those who even now are plotting similar terrorist attacks and we think to ourselves, they just need judgment is what they need. And we don't really think about the cross in terms of those who so desperately need it. We're quick to dismiss certain groups or types of people. It's, it's sometimes, you know, painfully honest to have to admit it, but when we think about certain groups, we think of pedophiles, we think of rapists, we think of murderers, and we just want justice for them. We don't really think about mercy. We don't really think about the way that God can redeem and turn hearts and save people from the most horrible, wicked, sinful, evil things that are conceivable in, in the human mind to commit. And so we even come to this story with certain, I think, certain prejudices towards the hearts of people that we think that we esteem as redeemable or not. 
And we need to be reminded that God is going to go after even the most wicked human beings. Let me tell you something a little bit about the Assyrians. They were the most ruthless, wicked people on the planet at, the particular, at this particular time. They, when they would ransack and besiege a city, they would literally put hooks through people's noses or jaws and string them like fish on a fishing line. And that's how they would take them captive and haul them off back to Assyria. Then they would often uh, nail people, uh, spread eagle on the ground, while they would skin them alive. And then they would wallpaper the walls of their city with the skins of the prisoners of war that they had taken captive. They would rape the women... And they would often disembowel pregnant women and kill their children in that manner and watch the mothers die in the process of disemboweling them. There are many records historically of towns in Israel where villages of people would commit suicide when they saw the Assyrians coming because to them that was a better alternative than falling into the hands of these wicked people. And these are the people that God says to Jonah, they're worth saving. This is challenging. Those people are worth saving, Jonah. And I want you to go and repeat a word of of repentance to them. And I want you to call them to a place of brokenness. Because they need to turn to me. Because they are worth saving. You know, Peter had to come to this realization. The Apostle Peter, when he, in his Jewish mindset, had excluded Gentiles from the kingdom. I mean, it was just typical Jewish way of thinking in this partic- at that particular time. In first century, you know, the, the early church, for basically the first ten years, those who believed in Jesus, Yeshua as Messiah, they were all Jews. You don't see a Gentile being converted until Acts chapter 10 when the church is about ten years old. And even then, God had to appear to, to Peter in a vision, in a dream, to prepare his heart to go share the gospel with the Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius because that Gentile was worth saving. And so here Peter is uh, at, the, at this time in Joppa, the same location where Jonah is going to get a boat to flee from God. And God says to Peter, I want you to get up and I want you to go and there's going to be these people are going to come to you. And God just tells Peter this in advance and he shows this this vision to him with these unclean animals coming down in a sheet from heaven. And Peter prides himself in response in this vision. He says, you know, I've never touched anything unclean. And then God basically, this is, you know, the, the Hamburg paraphrase. He says, well, great, that's great. Now, now get up and I want you to go to an unclean family that you typically see as unclean, the Gentiles. I want you to go into their household and I want you to preach the gospel. And Peter goes. And Cornelius and his household are waiting already because God had been working on Cornelius' heart on his end. And Peter goes in and he preaches the resurrected Christ. Cornelius and his family get saved. They get filled with the Spirit. And then Peter utters in Acts chapter 10, I now realize that God is no respecter of persons. That he does not show favoritism is what the NIV says. But that he he loves people and he calls people. that That he calls all nations who fear him and do what is right. That's what God wants. All nations. All people, all wickedness, all evil, all sinful hearts to fall at the foot of the cross and to be saved. And we can't just write certain people off, even in our hearts. We may never speak it, but even in our hearts, where we look at groups of people or types of people, we think, oh, I don't know, they would never be saved, or they couldn't, or they shouldn't, whatever our bent is towards why we think that they are not worthy of it. And we have to remind ourselves, none of us is worthy of 
including ourselves. None of us. So when we look at the whole scheme of the world and realize for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, it's for the whole world. So when you, when you think about the Ninevites here, it makes sense why Jonah would be upset in his own heart, like sometimes we might be, in regards to the redemptive power of God for these kind of wicked, cruel people. Really, God? 600 miles you want me to go and do this? So that's why he runs. So it's, it's, a, it's a great story on many different levels. And uh, perhaps it'll hit us in a more personal way as we read through this um, tonight. I want to read through all of the first chapter. That's probably, God bless you, that's probably all we'll uh, actually get through tonight. And um, then we'll, I'll come back and, and we'll, we'll dig it out deeper. But let's, let's first read through it and then we'll pray and, and dig it out. Verse, chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who was responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you, to you to make the sea calm down for us? Notice this. Jonah just tells him, pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord. O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we come now to this uh, prophetic account through the words of Jonah, we just want to thank you for the reminders of truth from the pages of your word, Lord. May you use this story to challenge us in different ways. May we think about the people that maybe we've written off and consider how you can still save anyone. Uh, Lord, how you love the whole world, Lord. You don't love our wickedness, our sinfulness, but that's what you died for. And may we have a heart and, an, and eyes to see that every single human being is redeemable. Lord, that you are no respecter of persons. You, you show no favoritism. But you died for all, that all might be saved. And so, Lord, give us a heart for the lost. 
And may we not write people off, but may we have opportunity as it presents itself to be used by you to spread the good news of Jesus Christ wherever we go, to be salt and light in our world, to be an influence where we work and where we live and in our homes. And we love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time we can share in your word together. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. There's a story of a guy by the name of Robert Ingersoll. Uh, Ingersoll was a Civil War vet, so this is going back some time. He was an orator, he was a lawyer, he was a politician who lived in the 19th century. But he was also an avowed atheist. And uh, despite the fact that he was the son of a Presbyterian preacher, and that his father was actually an assistant to Charles Finney, uh, Ingersoll uh, despised Christians and Christianity. In fact, one time uh, he said this, quote, The inspiration of the Bible depends upon the ignorance of the gentleman who reads it. So he was really averse to Christianity and to the Bible and to Christians. And Well, the story goes that one day there was a woman who was a part of the Salvation Army. and She was evangelizing on the street corner. She was witnessing to people about Christ. And Ingersoll comes along and he starts mocking her and ridiculing her and making fun and whipping up the crowd in, in, uh, and to antagonize her and to laugh at her. And uh, he asked the woman, uh, he said, uh, do you believe the Bible? And she says, yeah, I believe the Bible. I certainly do. And he says, do you even believe the story about Jonah and a great fish? She says, absolutely, I believe in that story. He says, you even believe. How is it and how could it be that this guy was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights? She says, I, I don't really know, but I accept it by faith. And I suppose when I get to heaven, I'll ask him. To which Ingersoll then said, well, what happens per chance if Jonah happens to be in hell? And then she responded by saying, well, then you, sir, can ask him yourself. <laughs> so there are going to be skeptics in regards to this story. We know that. And there will be liberal theologians who write off this story and they think of it as simply allegorical. There are some Bible commentaries that you read. They will say the story of Jonah is simply allegorical. It's not literal. It didn't really happen. It was just allegorical. And that it paints a picture of Israel's disobedience, Israel's punishment, and Israel's restoration. That's what some will say. I, I totally disagree with it, but that's what some will say. Of course, skeptics will, will dismiss it altogether as fictional. But Jesus talks about Jonah as being very factual, very literal. Uh, I'll just simply share with you out of Matthew 12 real quickly where uh, Jesus talks about uh, Jonah. It says in Matthew 12, 38... It says, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. Of course, Jesus is referring to himself. He's saying, I am greater than Jonah, and he likens Jonah being three days and three nights in the belly of this great fish to the coming uh, death that Jesus will face, being three nights and three days in the heart of the earth, a reference to uh, his death, his burial, and then his ultimate resurrection. And so he says that an even greater miracle is before you, he says to his generation, than what Jonah was in his day, because one is greater than Jonah, and he refers to himself. But yet the people of his day, many of them didn't accept him. That's why Jesus says the people of Nineveh will rise up as a testimony against you and condemn this generation because they turned at the repenting of Jonah. 
And yet you do not believe the one who is greater than Jonah in your presence. So he spoke of it as a very factual, literal event. Compares his own death, burial, and resurrection to the story of Jonah. And so, of course, if Jesus says that it's literal, we accept it as literal and factual and we believe that it is a story. But as a story of a tremendous miracle that is of great significance in the Bible. Now, I don't want to, um, because my time is short, I don't want to... Um, take up too much time in reference to um, actual stories in regards to um, um, people who have died and been swallowed by great fish and then recovered. But I, I'll share a couple tonight, and then maybe next week I'll share a couple more. Uh, but there's, there was a book that was written by J. Vernon McGee years ago uh, called Jonah Dead or Alive. And in his book, he quotes a lot from an author by the name of Grace W. Kellogg, and um, who documents different stories... And it's interesting. I found, found it a bit of an interesting read. There are two main sea creatures that are capable of swallowing people whole. Uh, one, I'll skip the Latin names, but one is called uh, the sulfur bottom whale, and the other is called the whale shark. Now, neither of these great creatures have teeth, but they swim the deep, and they are enormous. They feed in an interesting way by opening their enormous mouths, submerging their lower jaw, and rushing through the water at terrific speed. A sulfur-bottom whale, uh, 100 feet long, was captured off Cape Cod in 1933. His mouth measured 10 feet by 12 feet wide, so big that he could easily have swallowed a horse. Um, These creatures also have huge nasal sinus cavities, often measuring seven feet high by seven feet wide. Just the nasal cavities, not the mouth. Seven feet high, seven feet wide by 14 feet long. And there was one case that was recorded by Dr. Ransom Harvey in 1892, and it was written in the Cleveland Plain Dealer. That was the name of a magazine in Cleveland, the name of a newspaper, that documented a case where a dog was lost at sea. It fell overboard from a ship. And then six days later, it was found lodged in the sinus cavity of a whale. And it was alive and came out barking. (laughs) Now, can you imagine? You talk about doing a farmer's snort. You know, I mean, that would have been an amazing, an amazing picture, right? For some whale, and out comes this barking dog. You think you've had a sinus headache? Man, you've never had a puppy up your nose, let me tell you. That is an incredible story. But many others, I'll save some for next week because the time is short. But um, again, you know, uh, skeptics will dismiss this. But um, all of it is not only a miracle, but certainly possible. Let's take a look at the text together. Here we are, verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh. This is the capital city of Assyria. Uh, which Genesis ten eleven tells us was originally built by a guy by the name of Nimrod. And God calls him to go there, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah, this shows his own prejudice towards the wickedness of the Ninevites, Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Now, nobody knows exactly where Tarshish is, but the 5th century B.C. historian whose name was Herodotus said that Tarshish was Spain. 
So the idea here is he's about to board a ship. The next sentence tells us that. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. And Joppa is a port city along the Mediterranean coast of Israel. It's one of the stops we go to in our tour of Israel because it's just outside of Tel Aviv. And we land in Tel Aviv, we get off the plane, and depending on our schedule and what time we land, sometimes we stop in Joppa, sometimes we don't. Those of you who have gone with me to Israel, some of you are thinking, we never went there. Well, that might have been because of when the plane landed. But normally... When we go to Israel, first stop off of the plane at Tel Aviv is just a short little uh, uh, drive over to the city of Joppa. It's a port city. It's not used anymore as a port city. That's more Haifa as a port city. Uh, but it was in, the, in this day an ancient port city right there in the Mediterranean coast of Israel. And it's a beautiful city. And um, this is where Jonah goes because he's running from God. Now, if God tells you to go 600 miles east which is where Nineveh is, and you're running from God, you're going to get on a boat and you're going to go 600 miles west if you don't want to obey God. And this is what he does. So he's getting on this boat and he's heading towards, again, it's not completely known for sure, but Tarshish, probably Spain, which at this time would have been the furthest point on the map known to be occupied. And so he's going as far away as he can. Of course, you know, he doesn't realize what Psalm 139 tells us. You know, where can I go from your spirit? You know, if I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I go down to hell, you're there. If I sail on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. You know, Jonah must not have understood uh, what Psalm 139 says. You can't escape God. You can't just get in a boat and think, well, not now God won't see me. Uh, This is what he thinks, and this is what he does. Well, he pays the fare, tells us there in the rest of verse 3, which is um, an important point because there's always a price to pay when you run from God. He pays the fare, and he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. So this tells us that there's, you know, some pagan people on this boat. They're praying to their own God. And it's very, very typical of what happens when, you know, if you've ever been on a plane and you start to hit some really rough turbulence, everybody's going to start to cry out to their own God. You know, when you're, when you're in the moment of, I could die here, suddenly people get really religious. You ever notice that? The old saying, there's no atheist in a foxhole. And, you, and bombs are going off and things are scary and you think you could be dying. Suddenly people, you know, cry out to a God at least, if not the God. And so they're crying out to their own God. And then they start throwing cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. And, you know, they take their own, their own measures. It says, but Jonah had gone down below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. I mean, this guy is so checked out. He's like, I think I'm going to take a nap. I mean, he's in such, I don't know, rebellion. Can you sleep easy when you're in rebellion? I don't know. This guy is just, there's a storm raging. I'm going to go down in the deck and I'm going to take a nap. I'm going to go down below deck and take a nap. And this guy, the interesting thing is in this first chapter, he's going down, down, down constantly. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down below deck. He's going to go down into the belly of a great fish. And, and uh, it's just always this downward movement with this guy. Down, down, down he goes. And, uh, <laughs> and the Lord's going to finally get him when he gets down far enough. And so he falls into this deep sleep. Verse 6, Captain Steubing comes to him and says, Hey, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. 
And then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and lot fell on Jonah. Obviously, the Lord's behind that. I mean, they're just, you know, they're just like at, they're, they're like at Vegas. We're going to decide who, who's the one who's responsible for this calamity. And God uses it to point to Jonah. And so it falls on Jonah. And so they asked him, tell us. They got a bunch of questions for him. Who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? You know, they just want to know. Tell us the rundown. What is it with you that all this has beset us? And he answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. Well, this terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. So somewhere in the dialogue, Jonah says, yeah, it's, it's me. They're like, what, what about you? Well, I'm, I've kind of been running from God. He kind of told me to go preach to the Ninevites. I didn't really want to do that. And I got on a boat and uh, I'm sailing to Spain and uh, God's going to kill us all. And I'm sorry you're on the boat with me. <laughs> and they're just, you know, freaking out like, well, what, what in the world are we supposed to do with you? And they ask, they ask him that. They, uh, they, it says, verse 11, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? And he's very honest here. I mean, you have to give him credit. I mean, he doesn't lack for the courage. It wasn't that he didn't go to Nineveh because he was scared because this guy's going to say, why don't you just throw me into the sea? So this guy's not a mamsie. I mean, he's at least willing to say, just throw me overboard. He's, he doesn't lack for courage. He says, pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. Jonah knew it. He says, I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Please take note of this. When you're being disobedient from God, it affects the other people around you. It's not just solely a thing that is your problem. When people are running from God, they affect and infect the people around them. And it becomes disastrous. And Jonah realizes this. He goes, you know, your trouble, your hardship is the direct result of your proximity to me. He says, what you need to do is you need to throw me overboard so that it'll go better for you. Now, you got to love the response of the sailors. Because it's like they have a heart of compassion here. It says in verse 13, instead, the men did their best to row back to land. Now, wait a minute. So Jonah's just told them, you know why you're in this mess? Because I got, you got me on your boat. And if you'd throw me overboard, then you guys can sail on calm waters. And these guys are like, well, we don't really want to do that because we, we don't like the idea that we're actually going to be throwing you to the sharks. So we'll just row ourselves back to shore. But it says here that instead, it says, but they could not for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried to the Lord. Now, this is Lord, all caps. This is Yahweh. This is the proper name of God. They are now going to cry out to Jonah's God, to the true and living God. And they cry out to the Lord. Oh, Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. You know, we're about ready to throw him overboard. Don't hold it against us, God. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. And then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. Now, here's what typically happens. You see a loved one or a friend, or maybe in this case, it's a complete stranger, and they're in a mess. And the initial compassionate response is to help somebody. There's a lot of rowers in the world who are filled with compassion. We want to help somebody. So let's just kind of row back. The problem is there's a fine line sometimes between compassion 
and interference. And you don't always know which is which. In other words, sometimes God is doing something in someone's life and your desire to help them is actually hurting them. And it's making matters worse. And this, is hard. this is one of the hardest truths, I think, for Christians to grasp in all of the Bible. Besides, you know, like the great theological doctrines. I'm talking about, in practical sense, about relationships with people. And how to deal with, like, rebellious teenagers and people who are uh, walking in disobedience to God. And, and our, niche, our initial impulse is always we want to rescue people. We want to help them. And that's a good thing. That's a compassionate heart. And we want to try to do our best to bring people to, you know, the right senses and to the right relationship with God. But sometimes... Sometimes we can be doing more harm than good. In our attempt to rescue and to save people, we're actually interfering with what God is doing. And that what we need to do is the hard thing. Sometimes. I'm not saying, you know, across... Don't leave here and go, okay, forget compassion anymore. After this Bible study, what Pastor Gary is saying is, throw them to the sharks. No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am suggesting is sometimes love, the desire to help is actually hindering. And we need the wisdom of God to know the difference. And it's not easy. It takes sometimes prayer and fasting to know what's the best response for this person in this particular situation. Is it to do what they want? Or is it to do what God wants? And sometimes they are not the same. Sometimes they are. Sometimes the beneficial thing for someone is to help them in a very compassionate kind of you know, hand up, not hand out, but a hand up to just really, you know, um, lead someone in, into the white, right relationship with the Lord and to restore them into whatever the case might be. And sometimes it is to take your hands off and let God do His work. It is not easy to know the difference. Most of the times we end up finding what is the right response by the way something doesn't work. That if we try enough and enough and enough and something is not working, it might be because what God wants is He's dealing with someone on a level that we cannot reach, that only God can. And in those cases, we need to just kind of take our hands off and let God do His work. And it, is, sounds, it seems counterintuitive. Because when we're basically saying, I'm going to take my hands off of this person in this situation, I'm not going to help them anymore. Maybe they need to go to jail. Maybe they need to be on their own. Maybe they need whatever. It seems so counterintuitive to the Christian heart of wanting to help and comfort and console and assist and aid and restore and all of that. But sometimes that's what God wants. And we need the wisdom of God to know the difference. Well... After the sea grew calm, verse 16, of this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to Him. It's very interesting. They begin to turn their hearts towards Him. Apparently, these pagan guys get right with God in the process. And it says, But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Circle the words great fish. Again, it doesn't say whale. The Hebrew word is dag, D-A-G. I'm going to give you an easy way to remember this word because it's, it's not a whale. It's a great fish. We don't know exactly what kind of fish it was. It was just big enough to, to swallow uh, Jonah whole and for him to come out okay on the other side. So it's, it's dag as in 
dag, that's a big fish. Uh, that's, uh, that's the Hebrew word here. So, look, much more I want to say, but our time has escaped us, so I'm going to keep it for next week. So, uh, read ahead. We'll actually pick up there, still at chapter 1. There's some things I want to say in concluding chapter 1, uh, but because our time has escaped us, uh, let's pause there and pray. I'm going to ask with your heads bowed, eyes closed. Maybe there are some of you in this, this whole rescue, compassion, do I help someone or do I leave them alone? It's a, it's a difficult thing. I'm just going to pray in that regard that the Lord would give you wisdom uh, for a situation like that. Um, if any of you are facing that kind of a situation where it might be um, a loved one, um, a friend, a co-worker, and you're really wrestling with, you know, what's the right way to help? And should I just maybe even completely back off and let God do His work? And if you're kind of wrestling with this kind of dilemma in your own heart, in your own life, in regards to someone that you know or love, maybe you could just slip up your hand so I can know exactly who to pray for. A few of you. Several of you. Just keep your hands up as, as I pray. Lord, you see these hands. And you know the dilemma that they feel of wanting to do what is right to honor you and to help a person. But, Lord, at times we can actually interfere with what you're doing. We can sometimes hinder your work. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give them the wisdom that they need, that you would speak to their hearts tonight, that they would understand where's that fine line between helping and hindering, between assisting and interfering. And that you, Lord, would help them to know the right things to do, the right things to say, the right things not to say, the right things not to do. That they would just have the wisdom of heaven in relation to their loved one or their friend. And that you would be glorified, Lord, because ultimately we want them to know you and to walk with you and to live a surrendered life. And so help us, even when it's counterintuitive, to take our hands off and allow you to do your wonderful work. As difficult as it is for us to stand by, Lord, I pray for your grace and wisdom to know the difference. You see the hands, Lord. You know the hearts. Be glorified in these lives that we lift up before you. And we trust you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.